All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, we are going to be spending four Sundays uh, in various places throughout the Old Testament, um, places where we see like prophecies or um, like these stories that show us that our King is coming, that Jesus is coming. So uh, you can open up in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3. Will be the first of our four weeks together, just slowing down, um, looking for Christ in the Old Testament, waiting on Jesus. Uh, we are going to read Genesis three verse eight to the end of the chapter, verse twenty-four. The title of this sermon is Advent in Eden. We'll read Genesis 3, 8 through 24. So if you remember the the beginning of this chapter, this is where Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree uh, that they should not. They just fell into sin and uh, they realized they are guilty before God. And we'll pick it up in verse 8. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we know um, your word is truth, that your word um, gives us more insight into our life and the world than anything else. Uh, Your word word shows us here uh, the reality of the fall and of sin and our rebellion against you. And um, we still live in this world that is cursed and is broken. Our relationships, Lord, are strained, and we feel shame, and we hide from you. We feel at war with the devil. Uh, There's death, and there's mourning. And yet, Lord, uh, even in this text, in the darkest day of history, we see glimmers of hope, and of your character, and of your grace, and your mercy, Um, God, you preached the gospel for the first time, and you said that there would come 
there would come another child of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent and to make all things right. And so this morning, Jesus, we, we slow down and we look at your word and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would um, correct us and strengthen us and above all that you would fix our eyes, Holy Spirit, onto Jesus, the one whom, who, who can, the only one who can make this world right. Uh, we look to you, Lord. We know that you have come and we know you are coming again. So prepare us, Jesus, for your coming. It could be today. Uh, prepare your people. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, 20, 20 or 25 or so years ago, uh, a young, a young beau was stubbornly walking with his mom and his sister at the Montclair Plaza Mall. It was Christmas shopping season, and I was in no mood to be dragged from store to store, uh, getting presents for, for people that, w- that weren't me. And um, I began to just drag behind my mom as stubborn uh, boys do, and I'm ignoring my mom's calls to catch up. And I'm kind of just walking slower and slower. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I look up, realize I should probably catch up to my mom. And all I see is a sea of strangers. And it, this is the mall at Christmas time. And here's just this boy. And I just see like just strangers. And after a few minutes of hurriedly like running from store to store to store, Uh, This wave of emotion rushed over me, and I was mad at myself because I knew this was my fault, but I was also mad at my mom for somehow letting me do this, and I was embarrassed by uh, all these adults, like, clearly looking at me, knowing something was wrong, and I was getting scared. Um, I felt alone. I just wanted to be home with my family. I felt hopeless and helpless. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a cell phone. I was just in the mall with thousands of people, and I did not feel right. Now, listen, every person since Adam and Eve has felt these sorts of emotions. We have all made foolish decisions. We have all blamed others for our decisions. We have all tasted shame and embarrassment. Uh, We have all felt fear. We have all felt homesick. Like, Like even just the best moments in life, things don't feel quite right. We have all felt helpless. Uh, Genesis chapter 3 is humanity's story. Genesis chapter 3 is, is history. It really happened, but it also explains to us the, the world that we, that you and I right now are living in. Uh, you know, we live in, a, in an age, in a culture that believes in progress, that says, you know, because of our advancements in technology, we think we're actually like going somewhere. We think we're getting better. We think we're getting more enlightened and we're figuring things out. But in reality, we are still in Genesis 3. We have not taken a step past Genesis 3. The human heart is the same as it was on this day. We are fallen as entire humanity, we are in rebellion against God. We have strained and broken relationships. We all die. And Genesis 3 gives us the details of what, what may be the, the worst day in human history. The worst day. We, we had Adam and he had everything he ever needed. He had his unbroken relationship with God and with his wife, and he had a job that he loved that was easy and fulfilling. He was given the commandment to just eat of any tree but one. He had ultimate freedom. He was given the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. And yet on this day, Adam chose death and brokenness. And so Uh, Genesis 3 shows us, it gives us insight into this world, this life that we live, but it it also gives us hope. Even on the worst day, 
we see hope. If you look down to verse 15, this is known, verse 15, from like the earliest days of church history as the the proto-gospel, as the first time the gospel shows up in the scriptures. Uh, let's, Let's read it together again. Verse 15, this is God speaking to Satan. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's the offspring of Eve, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think it's incredible that the first time the gospel is preached, it's from the mouth of God himself. That God is the the first gospel preacher. And in the worst moment of human history, God preaches hope. And he preaches, we see in Genesis 3, yeah, things are going to go bad. The curse is coming. Death is coming. We will be at war with Satan and each other and God. But there is hope. God will send a child through Eve to make things right. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to walk through from verse 8 to the end, verse 24, and we're going to see four brutally honest descriptions of humanity. And yet we're going to also see four corresponding truths about our great and gracious God who promises that he will make things right. You know, as... uh, we all just experienced, or maybe many of us experienced, the holidays uh, are difficult sometimes. Uh, travel, travel with children, uh, extended family, family that you weren't born into, but you were married into, that you just inherited. Like, it is not easy. Um, and and as, as we approach the holidays, I know for many of us, it is bittersweet for many, many reasons that we find in Genesis 3. But it's important that as we, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas and to think about the coming of Christ, that, that the, the Bible gives us insight into this brokenness that we experience. And the Bible also gives us hope about what our God is like and what help and hope we can find in our God. And so uh, the, first, the first of these four truths, the first of the four points that we will see is this. Humanity hides from God but God pursues us. We, humanity, have been hiding from God since the day that we fell, but God pursues us. Let's look uh, at verses eight through 10. Let's read that again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What a sad scene. Just moments before this, Adam and Eve could enjoy unbroken communion with God. They could walk with God. They could talk with God. And yet, right now, they are running and fleeing from God. They are hiding from a good God. And honestly, how ridiculous to think you could hide from God, right? And and how were they hiding? Verse 7 says they sewed fig leaves together to hide from God to cover themselves. And now in verse eight, they are taking refuge in trees. Uh, King David tells us how futile it is to hide from God. He says in Psalm 139, verse seven and eight, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the grave, You are there. David goes on to say, we can't even hide our thoughts from God. Look at verse two. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Listen, you can't hide from God. I can't hide from God. No one can hide from God. And yet we have been trying to hide from God since day one of the fall. Remember Jonah thought, you know what? All I need to do is take a boat 
in the opposite direction God called me, and maybe I can hide from God. And he was to find out that the sea and the wind and the whales were all in God's control, and it was useless to try to hide from God. Since some of you right now are trying to hide from God, maybe it's outright rebellion like Jonah. Maybe you're hiding through the abuse of substances. Uh, Maybe you're hiding through busyness in your job or or maybe just harmless distractions. Maybe some some of you are hiding even even from, from God in good things. Like, listen, I'm just spending time with my kids or I'm just serving at church. Verse 10 tells us Adam was afraid because he knew he was naked. There's a lot of insight there as to why we hide from God. Uh, We are afraid of letting God in to see us as we really are. And maybe we, we hide just from the thought of God and so we just keep our minds busy or numbed out. But do you know what? If, if humanity was left to, the, to themselves, if we were left to ourselves, we would be hiding from God till the day we die. We would spend our days covering ourselves with fig leaves and running in the trees, hiding from God. Uh, this is the biblical view of humanity. Today, people say, yeah, people are basically good. We talk about a seeker-sensitive church as if there are seekers. Listen, there aren't seekers. We all run from God. We have been running from him since the day we were born. Romans 3, uh, chapter 10 and 11 says this, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Every person who has ever lived has been running and hiding from God. That's humanity. Merry Christmas. (laughs) Oh, but look at our God. Look again at verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man. Our God pursues sinners. And he pursues us at our very worst moments. And how does God pursue us? It says he called. He called. He speaks. He speaks. Through his his word, he calls. He says, come home. Where are you? He graciously calls. He calls through a question. Listen, God knew where Adam was. But he was being gentle with Adam in his sin. Adam, where, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you hiding? You have a loving, pursuing God who calls to you in your worst moments through his word. And that is a foreshadow of Advent. Remember what we learned John calls Jesus? The word. Jesus is God calling to us, come back. Where are you? Let me come to you. Let me come to you in your sin at your worst moment. I'm gonna seek you out. And what is it that keeps Adam in hiding? Remember we read in verse 10, it was his nakedness. He said, I, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I was naked. You know, we hear God calling, but we're like, uh, I'm just gonna keep hiding because I'm naked. I'm ashamed. I don't want you to see me, God. I'm more comfortable here hiding. And um, for many of us, we have done things that we would rather keep covered up. We would rather keep um, hidden. But look with me to verse 21 
and see what God does for humanity in their nakedness. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, our God doesn't just pursue us to expose us. He also clothes us with grace and compassion, ultimately through the righteousness of Jesus. See, Jesus hung naked and exposed for your and my sin. That if we would come to him and we would trust in him, we would become the righteousness of God. We would be covered. Our shame and our sin and those things that others have done to us and our scars would be covered. They would be clothed. And we would be safe in the presence of God. That leads us to our second point we see in Genesis 3. Another brutal reality of humanity is this. We blame God and others for our sin. But God willingly takes the blame upon himself. I want you to see this. Look again at verse 10. Look what, let's let's first look at, let's look at Adam's confession, okay? He, He gets, God calls him. God finds him, and does, Ad, does Adam say, God, I am so sorry, I repent of my sin, I rebelled against you, I listened to my wife when I knew she was telling me to do something that you said not, I repent, I confess, have mercy on me, God. Let's look at Adam's confession in verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Did you notice the only thing Adam confesses is his feelings and his shame, and there is no acknowledgement against his sin against God. Uh, Humans, we will almost never willingly confess our sin. We'll be real, like, yeah, I feel feel ashamed. Uh, I feel naked. But but we're hard-pressed to say, I have sinned against God. I have sinned. Sinned, I have willingly chosen rebellion against God. No, we confess our feelings. We may even say, I feel naked. But we will not humble ourselves before God. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I was going through my little rebellion season, and my mom was just on me. And uh, so I had this precious Walkman that, you know, or a Discman that had my CD. And I just, it was like, I rode the bus every day and it was like three hours of just me and my Discman. And so one of the punishments my mom had was she took that away from me. And um, one day when she was gone, I just went on a search. I'm like, I will find this thing. And I had searched high and low and I found it under the bed. And so I took it. And then one day as she was picking me up from school and I just had it in my hands, I just forgot, you know, you, you can't keep up with your sins. And so she's like, oh, where'd you, where'd you, where'd you get that? And uh, in that moment, I didn't say, mom, I have sinned against you. I willingly looked for this, and I took it when I knew that you said no. All I said was, uh, I found it. And like it was just under your bed, and so I, took, I figured if it was there that I could have it. Um, that's how we act towards God. We don't confess our sin. We'll maybe be like, oh, you know, yeah, that happened. Uh, that's exactly what we have been doing from day one. It just happened. I, I'm, I was, I'm naked. And then that's as close as a confession he gets. And it only gets worse. Look what he does next in verse 11. God responds, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God's giving him an opportunity. Have you done this? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. This is what humanity has been doing also from day one. Adam goes on to blame his wife and God for giving him such a woman. Remember, it was just days before Adam would say, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And now he's blaming God for this gift. 
And then Eve goes on to follow her husband's lead in verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam blames Eve and God. Eve blames, excuse me, Eve blames Satan. And from the beginning of time, this is so important in our culture, you guys. Humans have taken the position of victim rather than perpetrator before God. That is like our culture right now. Someone has done this to me. God, you let this happen to me. You did this. They did this. It's Satan's fault. It's my parents' fault. Listen, those things aren't untrue. But what is more true is that we have sinned before a holy God. And God sees through all of it. And so he goes on to address Adam and then Eve and then Satan for their sin. And God judges justly and fairly. Um, and no excuse, they make flies. And, but this is incredible. We are, here we are blaming God and blaming others. But even in God's judgments, in this chapter, there is grace and mercy. Again, verse 15, as God is judging and cursing the world for its sin, God preaches the gospel. Even in part of his judging Satan, he declares that an offspring of Eve would one day come. And this serpent, Satan, would strike at his heel. But this offspring would strike his head. Now, when you read that, it's like, okay, it's better to be struck on the heel than the head, unless it's like a venomous snake, right? Uh, it doesn't make a lot of difference if it's the heel or the hand or the head. Like, it's getting into your bloodstream, and you will die. And what this statement is, is that the snake will deal a mortal blow to the offspring, but the, the offspring would also deal a mortal blow to the snake. You know, what's the most vulnerable uh, part of a snake? It's his head. If you crush his head, that's where all of his life is. He will die. And so even in God's judgment, he is saying that one day an offspring would come. And 2,000 years later, that offspring came, and Jesus on the cross was was crucified and he was handed over to be crucified through the influence of Satan, the offspring of Satan. Satan entered Judas and Judas betrayed Jesus and there Jesus was and that lethal strike on the heel came and Jesus died and was buried. And yet through that act we know Jesus was dealing a mortal blow to Satan and he was taking the curse the wrath of God for sinners upon himself. And he was providing the forgiveness of sins. And as he rose three days later, he defeated death and Satan's head was crushed. That mortal blow was dealt. And so now Satan is still squirming around and he's lethal. You know, even the head of a snake that's been chopped off is lethal, but it's the mortal blow has been dealt. Satan's days are numbered. Notice, notice how Jesus is the, is the anti-Adam on the cross. Adam's blaming God and everyone else for his sin, but on the cross, what does Jesus say? He says, God, blame me, punish me for their sins, for the sins of Adam and the world. Take it on me. I will take your sin. I will become sin who knew no sin. We have all sinned just like Adam and Eve. We have willfully chosen our own way. And just like them, we, as we blame God and we blame others, what we deserve is to face judgment for our sin. But God has sent his son, the offspring of Eve, and he became sin, that we might become righteousness and receive grace from God. Uh, right here, this is kind of a halfway point. I just have a couple of practical things that this is so important for us. Um, and the first one is this. Because, of, because Jesus was blamed for our sin, for my sin and for your sin, we can, we can learn to genuinely confess our sin to God and to others. We don't have to blame others. 
We don't have to blame God. We can do what David eventually did in Psalm 51 and say, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. Remember, we've been clothed. Our shame and nakedness has been covered. And so as a church, we should be a people that on Sunday morning, four-second set, we can go up to prayer or we could go to someone around us and say, I've sinned against God. I chose sin. I sinned. And then the other person can say, yeah, but Jesus took your sin and you are forgiven. He was blamed for your sin. And so you, your sin has been washed away, pure as snow. We can take communion and be real about it. Like, God, I sinned against you. I know what I did and I knew what I was doing when I did it. I sinned against you. It didn't just happen. I chose it. And God, I repent of my sin. The second thing we can do is we, as forgiven sinners, we can take the lead in reconciliation with other people. Rather than be obsessed with the other person's sin and what they did against me, we can initiate knowing my sin has been forgiven by Jesus. He took my sin, my sin that was far greater than anything any person could ever do to you. And I mean that. Even the worst sins that we can commit against one another. Do not compare to what we have done to God. And he has forgiven you and me. And so we should have this posture Paul had. I am the chief of sinners. My sin is worse than their sin. My sin is a log. Their sin is a speck. And so we can take the lead in forgiveness and in reconciliation and saying, hey, let's meet. Let's talk. I know that I did this against you. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? And if we don't get that back in return, we can be like Jesus and still forgive them in our hearts and not allow bitterness to grow up. We can do that as a people of God. And the third one is this. Men, we can step up and be like Christ and not Adam. This is amazing. Commentators point out that God addresses an order of responsibility. You would think the first person God would address is Satan, because he, he, he started this whole thing. Then he would address Eve, because, you know, she, like, did it and then led Adam. And then he would address Adam. But, but do you know who God addresses first? He addresses Adam. He addresses the man. He addresses the one who is most responsible for this situation. You see, men, we, since Adam, have passively sat by. We haven't led we haven't initiated our wives with our wives. We haven't initiated leading spiritually in our church and in our homes. And then we just go on to blame God and blame our wives when things are hard. Listen, men, because of Christ, because we are being made into the image of Christ, we can stop being like Adam. We have a new father. We have a new older brother who shows us a better way. And so we can take initiative with our kids and with our wives and leading this church and, and giving money to this church. Men, that is your role before God. You are to be a man of God. Um, last encouragement here in this point is we still face the temptation to blame Satan for our struggles and our temptations. We are still tempted by Satan, and it's so easy to feel helpless. Those moments of temptation feel overwhelming. Uh, and I want you to notice that this verse 15, that, that promise is, is picked up by Paul later in his letter to the Romans. And, and look what Paul says to the church in Romans 16. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, under your feet. For those of us who have been united to Jesus, Satan's mortal wound does not just come through Jesus, it comes through his people. You can resist temptation. You can use the sword of the spirit and fight the devil and he will flee from you. God has ordained it such that those who have been united to Christ will also be Satan 
crushers, serpent crushers. You are not helpless when it comes to Satan. You can resist. You are not a slave to your sin, to your passions, to your emotions, to substances. In Christ, God will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so though we hide from God, God pursues us. And though we blame God and others, he took the blame on the cross. The third truth we see is this. We have been cursed, but God has taken and removed the curse. Look at, let's read these curses in verses 16 to 19. He starts with the woman and he says this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And this is the hard, this is the hard part. God says, I will deal with sin. There are consequences for sin. And, and God curses first Satan in verse 15, and then the woman in verse 16, and then Adam in verses 17 through 19. And, and, and it's so important for us to, to look at these curses because... Uh, there is no shortage of theories and opinions and books as to what is wrong with the world. There's no shortage. But Genesis 3 verses 16 to 19 give us the clearest picture of what is wrong with the world. And he begins with Eve and he, he says, you know what, childbearing will be cursed. What is meant to be the source of new life and joy becomes a source of grief and pain. And commentators agree it's not just the process of birth, but it's motherhood itself. And it's not just physical pain, it's also the emotional pain and toil that comes in being a mom. God also curses marriage. That word desire in verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband. It's the same word God uses later in chapter 4 when he's addressing Cain. And he says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This again is radically countercultural, but we see in this verse that a wife's desire will be contrary to her husband's and it will be to control him and to usurp his role to lead the family. And every married couple who has ever experienced marriage since this day has experienced these things has experienced these pains. Every man, every husband, every wife, if they were honest, would say, yeah, we've experienced that. And then God goes on to address Adam and God curses the ground, which is the context of Adam's work. The, the thing that he is to do to provide for his family and now work is laden with thorns and with toil and with sweat and it ends in death. Man, th these curses are devastating and they accurately depict our world. And just think about this. These words were spoken 4,000 years ago. And in spite of all the modern research and studies and medicine and technology and philosophy and psychology, no one has found a more true description of humanity than these verses. This is us. This is our state. This is the world that we live and groan in. But again, God still speaks hope to this kind of world. One who, though we have been cursed, Jesus took the curse on himself. And look what Paul writes in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged 
on a tree. And so Jesus hung there and he took the curse of sin. And he took the curse of Eve and he took the curse of Adam and he died. And now through his death and resurrection, he gives new life and meaning to motherhood and to marriage and to work. And he has given new hope for those who are destined to die to return to the dust. For Jesus himself went to the dust and Jesus rose again. That is our hope that right now, though we are, we are stung by the curse in Christ, in Christ, there is real hope and relief from this world, from these kinds of relationships and marriages and parenting and work. There is real relief coming. And what's so beautiful, I never noticed this until this week, is that it appears Adam hears these words of God and he has faith that God will make things new again. Even in this moment, this devastating moment, when he's reaping the fruit of his sin, look what comes next in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. You may have a footnote in your Bible. Eve means life giver. And so Adam had hope. In fact, uh, a cool little grammar nug is the, the verb when Adam names his wife is the perfect tense, which means it's as good as done. Meaning he is saying as he's naming Eve, it's as good as done. God will make things new again. He will bring life even out of death. He will undo the curse. He had hope that a child would come through her who would undo the curse and their sin. And so we've seen though humanity hides from God, our God pursues us and calls to us. And though we blame God and we blame others, God takes the blame on himself. And though we have been cursed, God provides a way to remove the curse. And the fourth and final point is this. We have been exiled from the presence of God, but God will come again as Emmanuel. Look at verses 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. At the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. We see in these verses that Adam was permanently exiled from the very place that was created for him to enjoy the presence of God. This is the reverse of all of the stories that we love where someone's estranged from their home and then the, the stories is journey back home and they finally get there. In this story, Adam had it all. He had home, he had peace, he had shalom, he walked with God and then he lost it forever. And this is also a shared human experience. We have all felt that homesickness, like we were made for another place, for heaven, for unbroken communion with God and others. And yet we just can't get there. We're, we're east of Eden. We're not home and no dream home or best friend or spouse can ever provide what our souls are longing for. Because we, like Adam, were made for the Garden of Eden, for pr the presence of God. And only that will truly satisfy our soul. And there's, there's a few clues in this text that, that 
draw similarities for, for what is to come when it comes to the, the temple, the presence of God, and, and what, it, what it is to be in the presence of God. And I want you to notice these two things. Number one, where was, where was the, uh, the entrance of the Garden of Eden? It was in the east. And if you go on to read about the design for the tabernacle and then the temple, the entrance was always facing east. When the sun would rise, it would shine into the entrance. And then also notice what is guarding the Garden of Eden, this cherubim. This cherubim standing there saying, no, that's the presence of God. He is too holy. You can't go in there. And that flaming sword says, if you try to go in there, you will die because you are a sinner. You can't be in the presence of God. And we know later in the Holy of Holies, there would be these two cherubim and their wings would cover the presence of God as if to guard the presence of God. And if any person but the high priest once a year went in there, they would die for God is too holy. You see, we long for the presence of God, yet we can't even handle the presence of God. We will die. We are sinful and he is holy. And yet, that baby came and his name was, as, look at Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as that baby would grow up to live a perfect life and die on the cross, that veil in the temple was torn. And those who have put their faith in Jesus and confessed of their sin and been born again and received the Holy Spirit are now called the temple of God. It's as if that angel lifts his sword to the Garden of Eden and says, come on in. In Christ, you have access to the very presence of God. And because of Christ and because of his blood and his righteousness, you can enter the presence of God with confidence, not as a sinner, but as a beloved son and daughter with whom he is well pleased. And so I know some of you this morning feel ashamed and feel kicked out of the presence of God. And it's important that we know that God pursues us and he calls to us, and he takes our curse upon himself, and he covers us, and he brings us back into his presence. Listen, there is no sinner uh, that is more powerful than the blood of Jesus to be permanently kicked out of the presence of God. Emmanuel is for you in your sin, at your worst moment, hiding in your shame, behind the trees with your makeshift fig leaves, blaming God and blaming others, he comes to you, Emmanuel, and he makes a way for you to be forgiven and loved and accepted and brought into him. So I wanna encourage you, if you haven't yet come to him or if you're just in this place of like, no, it's not for me, come back to Christ this morning. And then for the rest of us, if you are walking with the Lord, I want to remind you of the unbelievable access you have to God right now. Adam spent 900 plus years remembering Eden, where he was kicked out for the rest of his life. But you and I have access to the very presence of God. This morning, as we go to worship, as we take communion, as we pray, you have an opportunity right now to enjoy the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit has come and made us, he's made you his temple. And that's what these promises, this is, this is what the people of God look forward to, and it is also what we look forward to even now. You see, Jesus has come. He has broken the curse. He has made a way for us to come back to God, yet we're still in a Genesis 3 world, and we still experience death and sin and broken relationships and temptation. And so even as we worship, 
we can cry out to Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come again, Emmanuel, return, come back, bring us home. And we know it is as sure as he came the first time that he will come again, and you will see him face to face. And you, if you put your trust in Christ, will enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray. Jesus, you are holy, and yet you are so gracious to us. We are just like Adam, and we are just like Eve, Lord. And we've chosen sin and blamed others and blamed you, and we hide in our shame, and we don't want to let you in. Yet who is like you, God? You are far more kind and compassionate than any person. You pursue us and call to us. You were blamed for, for our sin and you took our curse. And you came as a child and you will come again. So Lord, I just pray now for those who don't yet know you, that they would hear your voice saying, where are you? Where have you been? Where are you hiding? Come out. Lord, and Lord, would you draw others to yourself this morning? Would you draw those who are your children who are also hiding in shame and in fear, who are listening to the voice of the accuser who's condemning them? Thank you that you silence the voice of the accuser. And your blood speaks a better word. Your blood says, I'll take your curse. I'll take your, your punishment. I'll be blamed for your sin." There's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. Come to me. And Lord, would you increase our longing to be with you in a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem with the people of God. Lord, even as we groan, as our relationships are strained and as our bodies deteriorate and die, Lord, as we struggle with sin and temptation, would you create a longing in your people for your presence? And I thank you, Lord, that your presence will be perfect one day, but right now, in this second set, on December 1st, Reality Carpinteria, first service, we can truly meet with you. Spirit, would you give us Would you bless us with your manifest presence this morning? With a sense of your nearness and your goodness and your mercy and your love and your kindness, your correction and your discipline. Would you make the gospel, the blood of Jesus, fresh and new to us in our hearts this morning? And would we worship you and enjoy you in your presence? Please now. before you to enjoy your presence. It's in Jesus' name.